77th Psalm is a Psalm of Asaph. Asaph actually wrote 12 of the Psalms that we have in our Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's kind of odd that we don't talk more about Asaph, because actually he's written more of Scripture than, there are really very few people mention in Scripture that have written more than Asaph has. As a matter of fact, we know a lot about Asaph. Scripture tells us quite a bit about him. We just kind of don't bring him up that much. But one thing we do know about Asaph, this was a man who was willing to be very honest about his personal struggles. He was very vulnerable about the things that were difficult for him and expressed it out loud in these psalms. Um, but something I don't want you to forget about Asaph is the fact that Asaph was actually a director of music. He was a director of music in the Tent of Meeting during the reign of King David. And then he continued and was director of music in the temple under King Solomon and then even again under uh, his son Rehoboam. So for many, many years, Asaph was the director of music uh, for worship. So I'm sure as Asaph wrote these 12 psalms, his thoughts were about expressing his own heart before God, but he also understood that he was directing us. He was leading worship. And these are words that were meant to guide others into worship. And sometimes we don't think of these as psalms that are meant to guide us into worship, to lead us to a place of worship, these psalms of lament. But I'm sure for Asaph, those that, were, that he was leading were very much in his mind as he wrote these words. So look with me at verse uh, 1 of, chapter, of the 77th psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. He says, you know, I was in a place of real despair. We're not told what was going on. We're never told in this psalm what the problem was, what he was really struggling with. All we know is he was struggling. He seemed to be in a place of pretty deep despair, and he was reaching out and begging God to step in and intervene in some way. And he tells us he's getting no response. Nothing's happening. God doesn't seem to be intervening. And you know how it is at night. So he talks about nighttime. And at night, when something you long for, something's bothering you, or something you're worrying about, how that thing just cycles around and around and around in your head, steals away your rest. And you know how it kind of grows bigger and bigger as you lay there at night because there's nothing to distract you, there's no way to get away from it, and all you can do is think about it. And that thing that was maybe like this suddenly becomes like this as the night goes on. That seems to be the experience of Asaph. Verse 3 says this, I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. He says, you know, God, I, I remembered you, but that didn't really seem to bring relief to him. He knows God's out there, knows he's there, but again, it's why, God, won't you come here now? Reveal yourself right now in the way I long for you to reveal yourself. Why won't you step into this situation in the way I long for you to step into it? Matter of fact, he even says, you know, God, you're the reason I can't close my eyes. You're the reason I can't rest because you won't step in, because you won't bring relief the way I want you to bring relief. And then he goes on and he says that he remembered God in verse 5. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? 
Has he in anger withheld his compassion? He remembers his experiences of the past. There's times when he was singing, he remembers that feeling of what it was to be in a place where I feel blessed, where I feel cared for and taken care of. And he, he remembers those times and it makes it now even harder because that's not my experience right now. Remember when God felt close? Remember when he intervened in ways I longed for him to intervene? God, where are you right now? Why now do I feel so alone? When I looked at various commentaries about this psalm, it's interesting. A lot of them kind of deal with this first part of the psalm as if, they don't directly say it, they, they kind of deal with it as if this is sort of a real negative part of Asaph's experience. Almost disrespectful in a way, the words that he's speaking. In fact, they point out, several of them point out, that Asaph uses 18 first-person singular pronouns and refers to God only six times uh, in those first six verses. But then as you go on in the last eight verses, there are 21 references to God with no personal references. So kind of, kind of assuming that this was a really bad place, something happened, and Asaph kind of came where he should be. You know, he moved out of being focused on him to being focused on God. And clearly in these early verses, Asaph's thinking about his situation. He is thinking about himself. He is struggling with his own pain or confusion or whatever is causing the distress in his life. But my question as I read those commentaries was, would Asaph have ever moved to the place of worship in those later verses if Asaph hadn't struggled with his difficult realities in the early verses? In fact, when you look through the Psalms of Lament, it's what you see again and again and again. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, about a third of the Psalms could be categorized as Psalms of Lament. And again and again and again, you see people struggling with difficult realities. And then something shifts somewhere in that process. But they don't move quickly out of that struggle. They sit in it for a while. And there's really nothing in those Psalms that tells us that that's a wrong place to go. Matter of fact, because these are songs for worship, these are meant to lead us into worship, it seems like these are words we're all meant to join in participate in in a way, feel with the psalmist, think about, experience for ourselves. Something about that seems necessary, I think, to move to those places of worship that we see later. The old Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren says this, Doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in his heart. A thought, good or bad, can be dealt with when it's made articulate. I kind of like that idea, because I am very much a a process or think out loud person. I, I think through things well if I can say them out loud with somebody else. You know, a lot of times it's hard for me to figure things out unless I can say it out loud with somebody else. The problem is sometimes it's hard to find people to let you do that, isn't it? Because as I'm sorting through and processing something and saying it out loud, you can sometimes see in the face of people that they're judging you for the, the process the place you're at in the process, and it makes you want to kind of pull back and hold it back in. Or sometimes they want to rush you to the conclusion that they think you should be at. Want to kind of hurry you along, get out of the process, let's get to what we know we're supposed, where we know we're supposed to be. You know, it's, it's sometimes hard to find people who will let you kind of be in the process, think out loud, and, and go through that. When you find those people, it's a, it's a pretty valuable thing. You want to hold on to that. One of the reasons I think maybe it's good to process out loud like that, to take things out of our head where they cycle around and around and around and speak them out, because you know how sometimes when you have this thought in your head and just alone you're processing and thinking it through, 
You get to a place where, for instance, a thought seems so right. You have it so figured out. And then you speak it out loud. And suddenly that thing that in your head was so complete and so right sounds so foolish. Matter of fact, even if no one kind of says a word about it, there's something about when I speak it out loud with other people, suddenly I'm considering their perspective. Just the fact it's out loud with them, their eyes are on it now. I'm considering their eyes being on it, and I'm thinking about it a little differently than when it was just in my head by myself. And sometimes they're willing to enter it with me, experience it with me, speak into it with me. It's not alone. And the same thing I get to do with God. When I speak out loud with God, I get to, I get to hear those things spoken knowing that he is hearing them with me. I know he's hearing them in here. But when I say them out loud, sometimes I evaluate them, see them, consider them in a different way. Second thing that happens, I think, when you speak them out loud is somehow that thing that grew so big when it was spinning around in your head, when you put it out there, it kind of gets put back into context. It kind of becomes what it should be again. I mentioned uh, this illustration, I don't know, a few sermons ago, where I talked about how many times when I'm talking with people about their marriage or thinking about my own marriage, you know how you get something in your marriage where it's like, that thing bugs me that my spouse does. I wish they wouldn't do that. That hurts me or annoys me. I just don't like the way they do that. And you get thinking about it, and you wish it would change. Maybe you talk to them, and it just keeps coming up. It doesn't change. And yeah, it can be that one thing can start getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that you almost can't be with them without that being in your mind. It's all you think about. My illustration was kind of like it's if I don't like the way Lori chews her food. Suddenly, she becomes nothing but a giant chewing machine. That's all she is. You know, every time I'm with her, it's all I can see because that thing's become so big. And I feel like many times when I'm thinking about my own marriage or counseling others about marriage, some of what I'm hoping to do is help them not erase that thing, it's real, but let's put it back into reality. Let's shrink it back where it belongs. It's a part of reality. It's not everything anymore. It gets to the point I can't see anything because it's blocking my vision. And when things cycle in my head, don't they do that a lot of times? When I do it alone, they grow so big I see nothing else. When I speak them out loud, when I face them with others, when I put them before my God, I think it's part of the process that helps me put them back where they belong. In a context that includes them, they're real, they matter. Often they are not small things at all. But they don't stand alone. They stand in the context of other truths. That's a helpful process. I think the Psalms lament, God gives us room to talk out loud, to process out loud together and with him. He makes it a comfortable place for us and encourages us to do that. But it's hard to do, isn't it? Even when I ask you to pray uh, prayers of lament, those are hard prayers. Now, if I'd said, let's all stand up and praise God for something, we've done that in here before. Those are pretty easy to get people to do. Prayers of lament, those are hard things to speak out loud, aren't they? Especially the very personal ones. It just feels a little risky. What will people think? How will they judge me? Um, again, will they see those as the end of the story for me? And will they judge me as wrong because I'm in that place? Lament's a hard thing. And I love the fact that in the Psalms of Lament, God invites us to process out loud with him and with each other in those things. Just last uh, Monday, you know, last week, David and Brenda Mensa were here, uh, missionaries that we support in Ghana, and David's Ghanaian man, Many of you here heard him speak last week. 
Uh, we went to breakfast on Monday with David and Brenda over at the Whitaker's house, and we were talking about various things in Ghana, and Brenda Mensa, who was, you know, born and raised in Canada, was talking about some of the differences between North America and Ghana. And one thing she said that kind of struck her when she first moved to Ghana was the fact that she just never really heard about depression. And she said, but I was in a place I expected to hear about it all the time because of the struggles people were in and the deep difficulties they were going through. I just expected there to be real struggles with depression. She said, I just never heard about it. And she said, not only did I hear it, because she said, I thought, well, maybe it's just not something that's part of their language. But she said, I really didn't see signs of it the way I see it in North America. And she kind of wondered why that would be. She said, I'm still wondering why that might be. I just don't see it the way I see it here. And as we got talking about differences in cultures, one of the things that um, kind of stood out was the fact that when you're in Ghana, and I saw this when I was in Ghana, when you're in Ghana, everybody lives outside together. These do. Like if you're in a village, the huts are a place you sleep, you store a few things, but you're never in them. You sleep in them and you're back out. You are, life is together all the time, in community all the time. Matter of fact, David said, sometimes it's together so much you wish it wasn't because people are always in your life, always speaking into your life, always part of your life with you. And one of the other things he said is, we are a people who love to tell stories. We love to do that, we love to tell stories, we love to hear stories. Brenda was talking about the fact that whenever they go to her home in Canada, David said, neighbors that none of us know and lived there for 30 years and none of us know, David knows every one of them, knows their story, knows every detail, because as soon as he gets there, he runs out of the car to go talk to people and hear their stories. That's all he wants to do. And he said, that's just what we do. We live with each other. We tell stories. And I don't know, but as I heard that, I thought, maybe that's one of the reasons you don't hear about depression the way you hear about it here. Because people aren't processing inside alone the way we do here. You know, in many ways, we are a very alone culture. We process so much by ourselves. We try to find resolution and solution by ourselves. He said, there, not so much. We, we live life out loud together often. Now, the Psalms, again, seem to invite us to do that, to live life out loud together. Not to make those things disappear, but to put those things back in right context and to not be alone while we're in them to be with one another while we're in them, and to be with our God while we're in them. Because that makes a difference. Say, no, the, the only way to solve this is to change the situation. Actually, the situation changes if I'm not alone while I'm in it. It is absolutely a different situation. Asaph, I love in the psalm where, you know, he doesn't do what I would be tempted to do. I have a situation I can't resolve. I can't get God to come in and reveal himself the way I want him to in this situation. And I would be tempted to say, well, if I can't resolve it the way I want to resolve it, then just don't care about it anymore. Push it down, kill desire, squash longing, deny it, make it go away somehow. Because if, if I can't find the resolution I want, then don't want it. Don't care about it. Don't see that in ASAP. Sure didn't give up on it. Make it not matter. Or I might be tempted to say, well, since I can't resolve it the way I wish I could resolve it, I can't God step in and take it away the way I want him to take it away. Maybe I can at least satisfy it in some way I can control. Maybe I can't completely satisfy it the way I long to, but there are always little substitutes I can bring in. Make it feel a little bit satisfied, you know? They not, may not be the real thing, but they kind of help, don't they? they? They make this longing almost manageable, because I can do something 
to kind of satisfy it and get by with it. Asaph doesn't seem to do that either. And Asaph doesn't seem to do, again, what I'd be tempted to do, which is just to grab hold of it, cling to my disappointment, demand and scream that it changed, and not let go. Be a victim until it changes. I'm not going to move away from it because it has to change. And there can't be life without it changing. It has to. I'm not inviting change. I'm demanding change because I can't imagine life otherwise. Asaph doesn't do any of those. Instead, there's this kind of yeah, but moment that happens in the 77th Psalm, and you find that in many of the Psalms of Lament, most of them actually. The one that kind of messes up the formula is the 88th Psalm. For some reason, there's no yeah, but moment. It's just lament from beginning to end. You know, I, don't, I guess that one's just to make sure we don't think we have a formula. Uh, but in almost every, well, pretty much in every other one, there's sort of a transition. A yeah-but moment. Life is hard. God, why won't you step in? I don't understand what's going on. God, please. Nothing. Yeah-but. I do something else. I turn somewhere else. Look in verse 10. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And he goes on through the end of the psalm, and he remembers God as rescuer, and God as rescuer of the people of Israel in the Exodus. He remembers how God has revealed himself. I can't get God to come reveal himself now as I wish God would. This is how I want you to reveal yourself. This is God. I would believe, I would trust you, I would cling to you if you would reveal yourself now in this way. And God won't. And I don't think he stops wanting that. But Asaph does something a little different. Instead, he goes to where God is. He remembers how God has revealed himself. He holds on to the fact that I want you to reveal yourself like this now. But God, you have revealed yourself. God, you have made yourself known. And the God who has revealed himself is a God who rescues. He's a God of power. He's a God who cares about his people. He's a God who listens to his people. He's a God who is present and active. You have revealed yourself. That's who you are. I demand you be this God. And you won't. And I still wish you would. But it's not because, God, there's no chance to know you. You've made yourself known. Told a story years ago. Um, I have to just keep retelling stories. I only have a few. But told a story a long time ago about when I worked in a jail. I was in a conversation with my boss there, and she became a good friend, and uh, she's just one of those real blunt-to-the-point people, so she always liked if I was blunt and to the point with her. And we were having a conversation one time about God, and, and she kind of expressed to me, well, you know, I've decided that here's who I want God to be. I want to worship a God who is blank. And she kind of had a list of who the God she wanted to worship was. And as I listened to her list, I thought, it didn't really sound a lot like scripture to me, but it was definitely the list she wanted, and it was the God she chose to worship. And as we were in the conversation, uh, again, just a person I could easily be blunt with, and she enjoyed that. So I said to her, her name was Becky, I said, well, Becky, I've just decided that you're a, you know, a, 65-year-old, six-foot-tall African-American man, and I'm going to call you Fred from now on. 
That's decided. That's how I want to relate to you from now on. And, uh, and she, you know, thought that was humorous. And I said, uh, you know, the reason I would do that is because, honestly, I, I can know you. You've revealed yourself to me. I can ask questions of you. There are ways that you're making yourself known. Maybe it's kind of disrespectful for me to decide who you are. If you don't reveal yourself to me, I get to do that. There's really no other option. But if you had revealed yourself, then honestly, it's my job to get to know you. It's my job to find out who you are, to move into the revelation you've given me, to be with you. Um, and the question is, and we can debate that question, whether God has truly revealed himself in his word, and, and she was a wonderful person to enter that debate with me. But to me, the point was, if he's revealed himself, then our job is to move into that revelation to know and to understand him. There are ways God has revealed himself, and Asaph stepped into those. In a time he wanted to know God, he wanted to understand, and God wouldn't come to where he was in the way he wanted. Asaph stepped back into where God was and where God had revealed himself. And I think something's different about the moment because of that. There's something different about the present experience where he still felt alone, where he still wanted things to change. Because in some ways, he was now not alone. Because God had revealed himself, and he knew that God, and that God wasn't showing and revealing the way I want right now. But I know that God, and I know he's here. It gives me a little more strength to wait, to be patient in a different way. Because he's with me, and I know who he is. Waiting's hard, though, isn't it? I, I love a poem by Lucy Shaw that I want to put up here, end with this. Um, it's a good poem, I think, just kind of this idea of waiting and what it's like really to wait, how hard the struggle is sometimes. When we truly long for something, and often long for good things, but we still have to wait. She wrote this, own it. Hold your heart the way you'd hold a live bird, your two hands laced to latch it in, feeling its feathery trembling, its fledgling warmth, its faint anxieties of protest, its heart stutter against the palm of one hand, a fidget in the pool of early light. Possess it, restless, in the finger cage of patience. Enfold this promise with a blue sheen on its neck, its wings a tremor, small feathered bones, until morning widens it like a window. And God opens your fingers and whispers, fly. It's a kind of waiting that says, I don't wait by trying to say it doesn't matter. And then when it comes, I'll enjoy it. It's the kind of waiting that says, I feel the longing, I know it's there, I'm aware of it, I so want to let it free and be satisfied. But I don't want to settle for less. I want the best. And God, I know your best, you've revealed it to me. I know how you'll choose to intervene. I know who you are. I know what you want for your people. I don't want to settle for less than that. I want to wait on you. And there's something about being in the struggle out loud together with one another and with God I think helps us wait. And helps us also remember how God has revealed himself so that we can wait. So I'm going to ask you to continue to join me in the 77th Psalm by a reading responsively again, and I think the band's going to make their way up here. Is that right? Well, we do this. So here's the second half of the 77th Psalm. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. Lord, 
I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now I want to ask you to join me in leading prayers again, but this time a little different. Maybe this will be a little easier. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, we used to call these popcorn prayers when we do it with youth group. And I just want you to stand and say a sentence that just remembers who God is or how God has revealed himself. So just a sentence. Just different ones stand up and in prayer, just pray a sentence that affirms who we know God to be, who God has revealed himself, how he's acted, who he is, his character. So let's do that, and after if you do that, I'll, I'll wrap it up in prayer. So let's pray. God, you're above us and beyond us. Uh, there are so many things about your ways and who you are that we just don't understand. But we truly are thankful for the ways in which you've made yourself known to us. We're especially thankful that we know you through your Son uh, for the ways you've revealed yourself in his great love and mercy and grace towards us. In your blessed name, amen.